Hey, friends, this is one of several podcasts I'm going to be doing uh, related to retractions. The great Western St. Augustine, a great Western theologian, um, at the end of his life wrote a book called Retractiones, and that's where he went back and took some things back, and he talked about how his mind had changed about things. And so um, I ain't no uh, Augustine, and uh, don't always agree with Augustine, but that's, a, that's, I think, a helpful thing. Folks who never change their opinions, well, um, I don't know, that says something, too, about uh, our ability to adapt or to apply new information and to continue learning and researching. For today's show, I'm going to be talking about something I did about 20 years ago, uh, and that is my uh, my dissertation that I really radically adapted and uh, changed over a couple years into the publication known as Faith, Reason, and Revelation in Theodore Beza. That's with Oxford University Press from 2003. And I'm not going to get into all the details of that, but I'm going to recap a little bit about what I was arguing and then talk about ways in which I see things slightly different, um, specifically the significance of the uh, right-hand man of John Calvin, Theodore Beza, who is really the architect of what sometimes is, uh, is called hyper-Calvinism. I'm going to talk a little bit about um, my reflections on that these days uh, and some things that I see differently about uh, the research that I had uh, set forth there. So if that's something you're into, come along for the ride. Thanks for being here. Let's go. So, why did I get into this character, Theodore Beza, in the first place? Well, one of, the, one of the things I was interested in, of course, is the history of ideas, especially as it relates to the place of science and philosophy uh, and rationality within Western Christian thought, and specifically, a really significant uh, place for the emergence of well, American thinking, not only about religion and science and the place of science within the academy, uh, but also the ways that this affected political thought, republicanism uh, as an example, uh, and commerce. The uh, interesting thing is you've got this group of people uh, that were these early, really reformed um, evangelicals in England uh, right when uh, Henry VIII kind of opens things up to the Protestants, you know, Henry VIII wasn't really that thoroughly Protestant uh, himself. He had, in fact, probably through the ghostwriter Thomas More, uh, written a piece against Luther. And for this, the Pope said that he was given the title, or the Pope gave him the title, um, the Defender of the Faith. Uh, but then after he died, the Protestants in England really thought that this was their great opportunity, especially with the young king, Edward. Uh, Edward is uh, somebody who was young and uh, was very open uh, to, to these ways of thinking and not only humanistic thought, but, but Protestant theological thought. Yet after he died young because of complications related to royal inble uh, inbreeding, uh, you have uh, the rise of Mary Tudor, a.k.a. Bloody Mary, who persecutes those Protestants. And so a lot of young thinkers, 
specifically young men going into church work ministry, they went off to the city of refuge, Geneva, and there they saw a, a certain kind of freedom, freedom from bishops, freedom from um, the kind of authoritarian way of thinking about theology through uh, the church. And so they had a heightened view of uh, reason, reasoning for themselves, uh, treating the Bible using, uh, at the time, critical methods of humanism. And so all of that was great. But what happened was these so-called Marian exiles, when they go off to Geneva, they start to absorb some of these ways of thinking that would not fit ultimately within the structures of the Church of England. And many of them became discontented. Uh, they, they were continually, uh, especially in the, the so-called Puritan movement, trying to purify the church even more than, than they had seen in England from what they thought were papistical ideas. Eventually, those who couldn't hang in England, uh, they ended up in the United States. And so American Christianity, I realized, was very influenced very much influenced by the thought of Theodore Beza, because all those Marian exiles, even though they went to John Calvin's Geneva and attended his sermons and, and his churches there in Geneva, the rector of that movement's uh, chief institution, the Academy of Geneva, was Beza. And Beza really uh, influenced the way theology was done. Uh, instead of just dealing with biblical texts, this gets kind of turned into a more dogmatic uh, curriculum as Beza starts to see that some texts, for instance, uh, Romans 9, 1 through 11, um, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Romans 9 through 11, chapters 9 through 11, which purportedly deal with issues related to predestination. These were uh, such complicated topics that they could not be uh, just discussed in the flow of, say, a study of the Pauline epistles. So um, that's where you get these kind of topical classes. Um, and we have those notes. And so it was very interesting to me to see the development of intellectual thought, the place of reason, and really this big question um, about scholasticism. You have this energy early on in the Reformation, but eventually scholasticism um, and more logical analysis of the system of theology. That's something that starts to take place under Beza and eventually becomes very scholastic in its form uh, by the 17th century. I thought that was interesting because Beza really saw himself as a young man, as a poet, as a humanist, and he was. And in fact, his chief contribution in many ways was his annotated New Testament and translation from the Latin. And so I, I wanted to show how that was maybe really his legacy. And I also wanted to argue against the thesis um, of Calvin versus the Calvinists, the idea that the Reformed scholastics somehow corrupted Calvin's theology. And so in many ways, uh, my book kind of argued that, um, that Beza was consistent with Calvin. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, some people have picked up on one piece of my, uh, of my book, especially some uh, German writers, um, that they thought was helpful. Uh, and my theory was, uh, or, or my way of phrasing it, uh, was that Calvin uh, presented a uh, rhetorical enthymeme related to theology, and Beza consolidated this theology, adding a sort of syllogism. And I mean this kind of, uh, not literally, <laughs> 
but uh, you need to know what these terms mean to, to, to get it. And that is an enthymeme is an incomplete syllogism, but it's effective. So for instance, a syllogism might be, um, I'm not sure it's a very good one, um, drugs are bad for your health, sugar is a drug. Now, if you just stop there and you allow the audience or the hearer of your argument to fill in that last gap, ah, well, therefore sugar is not good for me, or therefore sugar is bad for me, what you're doing is you're making somebody else think what you want them to think. So it's a tool of rhetoric. It also is kind of clunky for people to be writing and spelling it all out. So what I'm kind of saying is that Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion kind of feel humanistic in many ways. They certainly have a, a, a consistency to it. It's definitely more sy systematic than other Protestants uh, who are writing at the time. But what I'm arguing is that Beza then goes in and does the rest of the, the work to kind of fill in those arguments. And, um, and so I think, you know, I still stand by that, that, that ultimately Calvin approved of Beza's work. Beza was trying to kind of just put forth Calvin's principles in a way that, that made a lot of uh, sense within a scholastic framework. That's what he had to do. And so there's really a consistency. My thesis was that there was a consistency. Now, there's a couple of things, though, that I don't think I really fully realized back then, right? And, and part of this is, you know, the fact is, right now, I am no longer an adherent to traditional Protestant Christianity. Um, I'm still figuring myself out, but I've ghosted church, and I definitely see problems with the very questions that Western Christians were asking. In other words, you've got this alternative orthodoxy of, say, the Franciscans, uh, and you have another orthodoxy the Eastern Orthodox Church. But the Roman Catholic Orthodoxy sets a certain set of questions forth. And uh, even though Luther and Calvin, for instance, even though they reform their view in, in their world, they reform it still within the context of the mental landscape created by the Roman Catholic Church. What I mean is, if the question is, how are you going to stand in the courtroom of heaven after you die? Uh, how am I to be justified in a, a kind of divine legal sense? Then Luther, Calvin, and the Roman Catholics, and then ultimately the Arminians and Wesleyans, they all have a, a certain kind of question. But it's all dependent on how to not go to hell. And it very much relies on the um, Anselm's concept of why Jesus had to be fully God and fully human for our redemption. Now, certainly a strong theme within Christianity, but if I question that, then uh, it starts to show me ways in which a lot of the rest of the stuff unravels, right? So if I question a traditional view of hell, then these kind of questions about predestination take on a different meaning, or uh, maybe as I look at the writings of Paul, for instance, uh, and specifically the writings of uh, James, uh, it, it seems like maybe I was just barking up the wrong tree altogether. And so, you know, that's kind of the context for where I am now as I look back at that. Certainly, I'm not as embedded in that world as I had previously been when I was originally working on this at Oxford. Um, I still dig Jesus. I like the mystics within the Western church. There are Eastern fathers that I, I really dig. But ultimately, I'm giving myself space to be more eclectic and, and not really 
stuck in what I think is a, essentially a hostile takeover of the Western Church, in particular um, through the work of Constantine and the empire's co-opting of Christianity and the, and the movement of Jesus, later through the manly kind of religion of Charlemagne, who draws from Augustine, but but also adds a kind of warrior king um, ethos to what we think of as Christianity today. I also, in all of this, failed to really understand um, some of the value in the radicals, especially during the 16th century, uh, largely because growing up as an evangelical, I didn't like uh, any of that legalistic stuff. And, and very often, Anabaptists would be a little uptight, you know. But they also had some other things that they understood about the relationship between church and state, um, the value of the individual, uh, skepticism of hierarchy, and the idea that the church maybe should be a free association of those who are interested in an alternative world, rather than a kind of Christian dominion or Christendom, you know. So if I see this as part of the big problem, the the hostile takeover of the church by a kind of European um, hierarchical worldview, and one that really kind of ignores the original uh, justice concerns of Jesus, then of course I'm going to have a slightly different take on folks like, well, Theodore Beza, of course. That's one thing. But the other thing I've noticed as I've been rereading a lot of this is how tied in Christian, um, Cal Calvinistic Christianity is with uh, bourgeoisie concerns. Um, it, it's not really a, a theology that suits emancipatory concerns of poor people, uh, oppressed people. It's, and sometimes it's worst form, kind of something that helps nascent capitalists, um, business-minded people feel better about the structural sins in which they're caught up. Um, and by the way, if you're reformed, forgive me, this is you know, just how I see it these days as a not so much to criticize somebody else, but to see why I'm not vibing with it as much anymore. Um, in other words, like in India, you have the caste system, and that allows t uh, a person to deal with the cognitive dissonance of seeing people in abject poverty. Um, when Calvinists are alive, there's a lot of suffering in the world, a lot of injustice in the world. And how do you feel better about that? Well, not only is uh, is it the case that God kind of established this world, even though we are the ones who brought sin into it, God's still in control of it. Things are kind of as they should be. And so there's not as much of um, uh, an impetus for for transformation and justice within society, other than, as you see in Geneva, clamping down on morality. Um, it's, it's more of a constrictive thing as, as relates to the kinds of pants you wear or the kind of games you play in the, in the pubs and so forth. They banned theater, for instance, right? And, uh, and so that's, that's something that was just glaring, but I kind of ignored it about Beza. Like, how is it that this guy is somebody who can write drama and, in fact, does write one play, the Abraham Sacrifion? Um, he, uh, it, Abraham's sacrifice is dramatized, so it's a biblical story. But certainly, you know, the, the fun stuff that he could have done uh, is lost to us because he couldn't have a context in which to write it. Right. So 
um, so there's not as much freedom as the idea of Geneva as the uh, as the city of refuge might suggest. And in fact, we find this because during the time of Calvin, uh, you got this guy Michael Servetus who comes into town thinking that he can be in a free conversation. He ends up getting burned at the stake for denying the Trinity. So, uh, you know, it it was it was a restrictive place, and you know. Um, it also, I think, at least in the long term for Americans, if you see the trajectory that goes farther, uh, it separates in some ways ethics from salvation in terms of election. But that sounds good if you grew up in a legalistic evangelical system. But if salvation is defined as getting out of a false system and into the alternative kingdom of love and healing, Calvinism doesn't really help push in, in that direction, I don't think, at least not as it was with Beza. Uh, and so legalism comes in not as a way to earn your salvation, uh, but through this thing known as the practical syllogism. Ironically, these cats become terribly legalistic in that they try to prove to themselves that they are part of God's elect by looking at their good works. So they've got to do all these good works. They've got to clean up their acts so that they can prove to themselves that they're not damned from all eternity, that they're not reprobate. And ultimately, as much as I was trying to be sympathetic to Beza and that construction, I've come to see it as uh, rather problematic for society in general. And even if people don't consider themselves Calvinist, it's infected a lot of American Christianity in ways that I find have been problematic um, for young people, for just people within the system. Um, for instance... You, you know, you have to modify the thesis of uh, Max Weber, who wrote a book on the connections between uh, the spirit of capitalism and the spirit of Calvinistic thought. And I, I think that while I had rightly seen certain problems there, you can't really get away from it um, overall. It's kind of what Bonhoeffer comes to describe as cheap grace, where you have this uh, kind of owner class, not the, not the aristocrats, but the owner class, the business people, really using um, this idea that they have unconditional love of God to not look at the business practices themselves. I mean, how do you get um, so-called Christians going off eventually and having a slave trade and, um, and this sort of thing? Well, you do it by saying that... Um, that, that God is favoring me economically because I am essentially his people, right? Like I am prospering because God loves me. And so it's hard to see the injustices in your own system if you actually think that this is the blessing of God for you being responsibly uh, part of a hierarchical, patriarchal system. Now, it's fair to say that not a lot of that is in my book anyway. My book was primarily about Bayes' consolidation of Calvin's theology and the place of reason within it. But I think it, it colors the whole thing. Like I've, I've soured to the whole uh, thing so much that um, I think it's actually allowed me to then go back and say, all right, what are the other kind of byproducts of Bayes' intellectual tradition for European thought, not just in Christianity, but as it relates to reason in general? Um, and there's an interesting trajectory there that I didn't see before. So, to restate my thesis in the book, Beza consolidated, but did not fundamentally change the theology of Calvin. Um, and 
One significant difference I did point out, though, was the difference between Calvin and Beza on the philosophy of religion, uh, specifically the role of what we might call empiricism. This isn't the empiricism that comes to be articulated later on, um, say during the Enlightenment, but it's more of an inductive approach, um, more Aristotle, um, maybe even more, more Occamistic than Calvin, and that Calvin had a little bit of a Neoplatonic streak. And uh, I think one of the most important um, contributions of my book was that uh, for Calvin, uh, intellectually, the arguments for faith um, or uh, evidential arguments for believing in Christianity, uh, whether they be rational or uh, related to the biblical texts, just weren't that important. This is because he believed that if you were predestined, uh, if you were part of the elect, your mind would work spontaneously uh, with the proper function, to use a more recent phrase from Alvin Plantinga, uh, the Reformed epistemologist. The idea is if the Holy Spirit comes and testifies to your heart, uh, there's a kind of fideistic response, that is, you just have faith in this thing because you see it and you see it's true. And so there's no use looking at any of the evidence uh, related to the biblical texts or that sort of thing. Beza, on the other hand, uh, agreeing with Calvin that only the elect could have uh, access to the truth or they would only the elect would see the truth, um, nonetheless argued that the arguments for faith were important and legitimate, that God works through means, God works through word and sacrament in the church context, but also um, God works through the means of rationality. Now, what's interesting about this, and I did, I did spend some time on this in the book, um, but I didn't go far enough, and that is that the very process, that little change where God works through rationality in Beza, that little change brings a stronger respect for reason, uh, instrumental reason within theology in Beza. And Beza uses this uh, to argue for a very consistent, rationally uh, interconnected system of thought that, uh, yes, derives from Calvin, but he puts it together in a way that is emerging as what we call scholasticism. Beza's thought leads, I think, unintentionally to the Enlightenment itself. That's something I didn't really see back then. That is, the place of reason within theology and, and how it kind of can take a, a statement in Scripture and then, uh, through instrumental reason, draw something out from that. Um, it, it led to a consolidation of orthodoxy under the Genevan uh, scholastic theologian Francois Turretini or Francis Turretin. That text called the Institutes of Elenctic Theology, that is the Institutes of Arguing Theology, um, consolidated Calvin's thought even further. But it's interesting that Francis Turretin's son, this guy Jean Alphonse in Geneva, shifts in a different direction. He's much more open-minded, um, liberal, if you want to use those words, and is open to conversations uh, in, in a broader sense 
Voltaire comes and visits and thinks that this is going to be really open-minded, finds that they're really just kind of like progressive Christians, still Christian in the traditional sense, uh, but trying to use reason to get there. And yet, under uh, Jean-Alphonse Tarantini, the, 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 ground is, the ground is set, uh, or the table is spread, if you would use a different metaphor, uh, for the Enlightenment rejection of Calvinism itself. So you, st- you still have a certain kind of Calvinistic ways of thinking, even though the basic dogmas uh, sometimes will be set aside. So how did this happen? The thing that I didn't realize was that I was dealing primarily in cognitive propositions, and what I failed to understand is that the form of theology, the the style in which you do theology, actually has an effect or can can change the character of that theology. Um, it's the opposite of mystical, right? But you could have a mystic... Uh, maybe not in Calvinism, but let's use Lutheranism. You could be a Lutheran mystic or you could be a Lutheran scholastic. And while you would believe perhaps some of the same doctrines about salvation and justification, it still seems that the those styles also generate a different conception of who God is and what a person's relationship to God would be. And so that lack of the, the, the spiritual, uh, mystical, intimate side um, of faith in the style of the scholastics takes away something from faith. It, it takes away something from the experience of it. It would be like, um, you know, the difference between Islam and, uh, and Sufi Islam. Um, most Sufis aren't going to deny things, but they have a little bit more freedom right? Freedom to dance, that sort of thing. Um, and, and so in the same thing is true in Christianity, there's a certain kind of spirit of Christianity you see in Beza and that spirit, the way theology is conceived, uh, is very different from say the thought of Richard Rohr today. Now Richard Rohr still calls himself a Christian, a person with an alternative orthodoxy, but it's just very different. Right? And, and people see that and know it, and I think that's why Richard Rohr is increasingly popular, uh, for instance, today, by people that grew up in the church, want to still connect with their faith tradition, but in a slightly different way. Now, why do they do this? I argue in the book, and I agree with it still, that the reason the scholastics become scholastics is for political reasons. You have this idea of uh, cuius regio, eius religio. That's the idea that whoever the magistrate is, their religion is going to be the, the religion of the land. They couldn't conceive really of plurality within, a, within a, a polis, within a city. And so for this reason, they trained young men to argue. And this is still with us today, that Christianity has become a very militant, combative, argumentative kind of thing. I already mentioned Francis Turretin's book is called Institutes of Fighting Theology, basically, uh, and Institutes of Elenctic Theology. The uh, rhetoric of Calvin is replaced with a polemic, a logical polemic of the scholastics, and for good reason, they needed to win people over. They would actually have these colloquies between the Catholics and the Protestants, or between Calvinists and uh, Lutherans. And, uh, and when they did this, 
if they failed, if they weren't good arguers, then they might get kicked out of a principality or a city. So there was a good reason for it, the good historical reason. But I think what I've come to realize now is that the long-term unintended consequence of that is that there's not as much of a, a, a valuable pastoral spirit within Protestantism, given that period of time when there was actual bloodshed, um, when you when you couldn't come to an agreement in a in a debate, or you couldn't win your friends over. Another thing I don't think I spent enough time really dealing with is the implications of Bayes' supralapsarianism. That is the idea. This, this idea of supralapsarianism is the idea that God predestines people to fall ultimately before he, in a logical sense, considers creating them. That is, a supralapsarian means if you look at it as a timeline from the top to the bottom of a, of a page or a diagram, the lapsus or fall happens after God's decree to elect some and reprobate others. And the psychological implication of this is more dangerous than I realized. Um, it, it, again, it leads to too much permissiveness about human suffering. If you believe that every human being that's born is born deserving eternal torment in hell, but that God freely rescues some portion and, and not even a majority necessarily of that human mass, he predestines some of those people to eternal bliss, uh, apart from anything they've done, but uh, sends the rest of the mass to excruciating pain uh, in the afterlife. And there's nothing they could do about it. That is something that I think is very traumatic for a person to consider. And what it does is it sets up this uh, archetype of a, the father God in the sky as someone that is capricious, uh, abusive, um, and willing to allow a majority, perhaps, of this God's creation into to, to being cast off and to utter, utter a rejection. And so I don't think it's surprising that Orthodox Calvinists today in America, where they see dad and the pastor as expressions of this hierarchical relationship with God, um, when you think in those ways, you know, you could say, well, these are shitty people, the, the pastor and my dad, they might even be angry, capricious and abusive, but that's kind of how God seems. And more importantly, God put them there. So we need to take our medicine. Uh, and so I don't think it's surprising that especially today, there's a lot of this hyper-masculinity within reform traditions, reformed circles in America, and a kind of disregard for the part of us that feels compassion on those who are like, not us. Right, So the people that aren't believers, they're going to hell, and you can kind of dehumanize them, or at least you could say, those people are suffering, and they kind of aren't suffering as bad as they will after they die, so what's the, what's the matter, right? If there are a bunch of non-Christians suffering under immense uh, burdens of poverty, you, you know, in a general sense, you might want to have this communal care or common grace for those people, but you don't really have to worry about it that much because ultimately there's nothing you're doing in this unjust economic system that isn't far better than what they're going to experience in eternal, in eternal hell. 
And um, it's interesting too, again, that there was this pastoral element to Calvin because Calvin was interested in bringing comfort and assurance to people. Late medieval Christians had always felt like they never could be sure that God loved them. They're never sure if they had done enough because the late medieval theology said, facere quad in se est, do the best that's in you. But if you do the best that's in you, you never know if you've done the best. And the Catholic Church at the time generally did not want you to feel like you were guaranteed of God's unconditional love. So for Calvin, it was true that he was trying to bring in this sense that, no, God's got you and there's like, it's unconditional, but only for you if you're the elect. And then that always makes people think, well, wait, maybe I'm not elect, right? So there's that, that anxiety. I would say that if you look at the work, say, of this uh, confessional writer, Guido de Bray, um, you can see a, a way of conceiving Calvinistic theology that's very pastoral. But I think a lot of the time it goes off in these other directions, and Beza is responsible for some of that. Um, and I was not really willing to admit that when the book was published because I was still kind of living in that world. And ultimately, as I look back to it, I see that it was kind of sad that Beza was such a strong poet and playwright at the beginning, but ends up having to give up that thing that made him happy so that he could fit into this bigger ideology. And I think it does something to society, certainly does something to pastors and, and churches in terms of what they're connection is with the rest of the world. I also think that it's interesting, uh, you know, I was always keen to argue that Beza wasn't supporting a theocracy because ultimately, technically, there was indeed a separation between church and state in Geneva. But the thing is that the state actually, not only did the state oversee the church in Geneva so that you thought, well, that's kind of a move in a more secular direction, you... You, you can do this, but you forget to recognize that the dudes who were running the show were in league. You know, there were these Calvinistic Christians running the civil ordinances of society. They were a separate body. You know, the city council was going to be different from the consistory or the, the group of elders, but ultimately they were all in league together. So this is what we mean by the magisterial reformation. That is that the, the mainstream Protestants are those who you know, saddled up with either princes in the Lutheran cases or the, you know, the representative government in the, in the, in the case of Geneva. But there's, there's this, there's this kind of problem where the winners, the economic winners that are high, high upstanding members of society from the business class uh, are aligning with the pastors and they're kind of running society. So it, you know, is that a theocracy? Well, it, it, it seems like a lot more similar to what's say something you'd see in Iran um, or the, the Taliban, just a different religion. And maybe the punishments are different, but it's not that different. Uh, so I under, I underestimated that at the time. I also underestimated, um, I think how uh, ultimately, uh, you know, to kind of bring it to a close, um, how, the strong rejection of people who don't fit within the system that that Beza was able to articulate are are demonized and seen as the enemy. Whether they be free thinkers, the so-called libertines within Geneva, uh, or or dissenting voices from within their own ranks, or even Lutherans, right and. And I guess this is this is the kind of the final point of all of it. Uh, 
I was keen to argue that Beza was really much more of a biblical scholar than we think. And that's true because his, his big contribution is biblical scholarship. But in his teaching in other ways and the, the sort of system that he was helping to architect, there is such a concern for a consistent and coherent system that I think it, it caused them to not be able to look at other aspects of evidence in the world that was anomalous. Um, things that didn't fit within their system, they were able to explain away through coherentist type thinking. And so it's heavily ideological rather than organic, as I, I, I think the best way to say it. You can be a good biblical scholar, but not if you're going to put constraints on how far you'll go in your interpretation. Are you going to be reading something? And, and the great example would be another text that I'm not going to retract because I still kind of, well, maybe I'll, I'll come back to it. My uh, article on uh, demon, I called it demon semen, where you have, um, you have the reformed and Lutherans both kind of questioning what's going on in, in uh, Genesis one, Genesis six, one through four, where you get the sons of God, the Beneha Elohim um, making babies with uh, human women. And uh, the thing that I found there is that because there was a systematic theology related to angels, that is that there was this a priori assumption that angels couldn't have bodies, they rejected a plain reading of that text. I suppose also because Calvin was well-versed, as Beza was in the pagan mythological literature, they saw that there was a great deal of similarity between Genesis 6, 1 through 4 and other ancient mythological landscapes. And you can kind of see them just closing off um, to something that's obvious because it doesn't fit within their system. And I think whenever you get that, um, you get the kind of weird world that we're living in now, especially with conservative Christianity and as it's in relationship with right-wing politics, a rejection of things and experiences and observations that are problematic for the ideology. Um, and this rejection comes from a hyper-focus on the coherence of the ideology rather than respect for data as it confronts us. I guess I'm saying that while Beza did have a certain level of consistency with Calvin. He took things in a direction, a more um, coherent, a systematic direction that caused people to close off their empathy and for the lost, closed off empathy for people who saw things slightly differently from the, the theological ideology of Geneva, and therefore created a, a kind of a hostile spirit for difference, uh, for otherness within Geneva that led to the American scene continuing that. And I think it's toxic for our spirituality. And I was dealing with somebody who was kind of right at the heart of that, that trend. And I didn't see it. And I didn't see it because I was in it. <laughs> and I think that's kind, of, that's kind of the lesson. So to conclude, I'm not really rejecting anything. I don't really reject anything too much in that first book, um, but I do have some retractions more in the way of kind of modifying my, um, 
my understanding of the importance of the style of theology and the methods and the and the style of teaching, uh, what we call pedagogy in theological education, and the way that the style of theological theological education in Geneva influenced the style of education at Princeton Seminary and how that influenced the tone of theology in America, and that tone is, I think, a lot less helpful than I realized at the time. All right, well, that's that. Thank you so much for uh, letting me get that off my chest. I hope uh, that you live in deep peace upon peace, my friends. Peace. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP. And rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.